You join us here on our perch at the far end of the bar. He's Ben. He's Richard. And just before you joined us, we were talking about a whistling language. <whistles> well, there you are. You could have been a clanger, couldn't you? <laughs> There's a strange thing that happens because I know you've got a lot of builders around you. There's a, I mean, apart from the, you know, the obvious builder's whistle, mm. there is this thing that if, if, you, if you see two workmen, whether on a building site or anywhere, who are both whistling and they approach each other, they kind of swap tunes as they go past each other. Mm. It's very, very strange. My uh, stepfather-in-law, he's a great whistler. Well, I say he's a great whistler. He's one of these. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's like the soundtrack of a cartoon, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just walking down the street, (laughs) minding my own business. Oh, look. Here he comes. (laughs) (laughs) My father was similar in in that he didn't didn't have the... He didn't have that bit, Mm. but he had the whistle. I'd spend my life saying, Father, get a tune. <laughs> Just anything. Anything. Please. Anything at all. Just get a tune. Oh, I, well, I, there was a tune in my head. Oh, really? It wasn't on your lips. <laughs> Are you worried about copyright? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> now, listen, you and I were talking about Sandringham time the other day, weren't we? Yes, because... Um, because you were early for something. I was early for something, and uh, apparently this is quite unusual, but whatever. Um, so, yeah, you were in telling me all about Sandringham time, which I wasn't aware of. No, well, exactly. You, you were early for something, and I said, uh, are, are you on Sandringham time? And then you said, what? And, and then the conversation went on from there. But Sandringham time, um, at the time, I said to you that um, I thought it was to do with the fact that Edward VII liked to be punctual and so therefore had all the clocks moved so that he would have an extra half an hour mm. to allow him to get to the place he needed. Utter rubbish. Utter yeah. rubbish. It's all to do with the fact that he liked hunting. Yep. And so um, to create more time, more evening daylight for his hunting, they had to move the clocks forward half an hour. All the flunkies, all the people who um, there's probably the Queen's um, uh, clock winder mm. or the King's clock winder who would have gone round Sandringham Palace shifting all the clocks forward half an hour just so that Edward VII could go out and shoot something. One doesn't want to be up at the crack of the sparrow's fart. One wants to be up half an hour before. <laughs> and then shoot the thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Now, about this time in our podcast, I usually try and tempt you with a refreshing libation. And for some reason, you've been very reluctant to take me up on any of these so far. No, well, I mean, they haven't been very tempting or refreshing, come to that. You are proving to be uh, a, not a non-omnibiblious person. A non-omnibiblious yes. person. So far, proudly non-omnibiblious uh, because someone who is omnibiblious is someone who will drink anything, and that you are not. Mm. Uh, however, I have confidence that today you will have a go at this. Uh, well, before you go any further, let me just check. Are there any lychees staring at me like eyeballs from the edge of the rim of the glass? None. Check. Okay. Fighting chance, then. Let's oh, go. Okay. okay. Butter tea. Uh. Otherwise known as 
Po Cha. This is a Tibetan delight. Is it? Yes. I mean, if that doesn't sell it to me, what will? Well, well let, let me try this. I'll give you a little more detail, shall I? This is a drink of the people in the Himalayan regions of Nepal, Bhutan, India, and Tibet. Uh, are you smacking your lips in anticipation? Mm, I mean, if it's good enough for the Himalayan people, then it's probably good enough for me. should be smacking your lips because one of the benefits of butter tea is that it's a great way to avoid chapped lips. Ah. The highest quality butter tea is made by boiling uh, the tea leaves in water for half a day, achieving a very dark brown colour. It's then skimmed and poured into a cylinder with fresh yak butter. Yak and butter. Yak butter. And salt. So that's the bit that avoids the chapped lips. Uh, and salt. And then it's shaken. And the result is a liquid that is about the thickness of a stew or thick oil. It is then poured into teapots or jars. Another method is to boil water and add handfuls of tea, which is allowed to steep until it turns almost black. Salt is then added, along with a little soda. The tea is then strained through a horsehair or reed colander. You'll have yours at the ready, won't you? Yeah. And then into a wooden butter churn it goes, with a large lump of yak butter, and off they go again. It's churning away until the tea reaches the proper consistency and is then transferred to copper pots that sit on a brazier to keep them warm. Uh, if you've no churn available, a wooden bowl is acceptable and rapid stirring will suffice. Now, have I, have I sold this one to you? Two things strike me. One is that I think it's always a good way to judge the quality of tea uh, by how effective it is at um, treating chap lips. <laughs> and... Oh, the yeah, the yak butter. Not only is that the name of one of the ingredients, it's also the noise you make once you've drunk the tea. I think, right? Yak. Yeah. So I think I'm just going to have to add that one to the ever-growing list of drinks that I've refused. This is this is very popular in the Ganden Monastery in Lhasa, Tibet. Uh, they prepare food for two and a half thousand monks up there. And um, whilst they're doing this, at each stage of the preparation, they stop for a moment and have a prayer. Mm. Have a prayer. Please, could you invent another tea for me? <laughs> Please make it Earl Grey. <laughs> Got something you want to tell us? Email thefarendofthebar at gmail.com or find us on Insta, Twitter or Facebook using the hashtag TFEOTB. What have you got over there? Let me introduce you to the San Diego Rainmaker. Okay. This is a man called Charles Hatfield. Yeah. A sewing machine salesman by trade, but right. also a student of pluviculture. 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 Oh, yeah. Right, okay. It's a great name uh, for the study of rain, basically oh. speaking. So he does... being the French for rain. Il pleut oh, dans yeah. le valley. Oh, là. Yeah. Écoutez. <laughs> he called himself a moisture accelerator. Did he? Goodness mm. me. Yes, he, uh, he would have had his own website these days, wouldn't he? he? Yes, a, a niche Never. website. <laughs> <laughs> Probably highly successful. Anyway, in those days, it meant that he considered himself able to summon rain. Um, so, San Diego uh, promised him $10,000. 
if he could make it rain because they uh, they'd had a terrible chronic drought there. So the area's reservoirs were empty and they were in desperate need of some fresh water. So Hatfield uh, claimed that he had invented a cocktail of chemicals which could be injected into the clouds and thereby cause the requisite downpour. Early January 1916, he and his brother built a 20-foot tower, burned his chemical concoction at the top, and witnesses reckon they saw flames and fumes and smoke spurting into the sky. Okay. On January the 5th, it started to rain. Yeah. And rain and rain. 30 inches of rain fell in a month. So the reservoirs were very full very quickly. The local dam was destroyed. Roads were washed away. Railway tracks lifted up, swept away. Property destroyed. And maybe they reckon up to 50 people died, very unfortunately. He was too good for his own good. This is the thing. He never actually got paid the £10,000. Why ever not? The council reckoned it wasn't anything to do with him. They reckoned it was an act of God. And so they refused to pay him. He should have kept it raining. (laughs) The theory is that he wasn't necessarily an expert in uh, concocting chemicals that would bring rain, but more a very skilled amateur meteorologist who was very good at predicting when rainfall would appear. But even if you were an amateur um, meteorologist, you'd have to be something of a snake oil salesman as well. Hmm. to convince the local council to pay you $10,000, even if they had no intention of going through that. Yeah. Um, because, you know, you, 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 you go along, knock on the door and say, you know, I can make it rain. And they go, oh, yes, all right, then. No, I've got a concoction. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Sure, it's your sewing machine. You know, that would get most people nowhere. But he obviously had uh, had a talent. He had the gift of the blarney, I think. He had the, the gift of the whiz-bang up a yeah. tower. That's what he had. I think he had a bit of the Barnums about him because he claimed in his life at least 500 successes in making rain fall in oh, various places. But what's his, what's his name? Charles Hatfield. Why have we never heard of Charles Hatfield? Then? Well, he died in 1958. Yeah. And he took his chemical formula with him to the grave. Oh, did they? So, was it uh, raining inside the coffin? Yeah, a very soggy coffin, that one. I read, this is some time ago now, I, I was talking to a pucker weatherman about seeding the clouds and whether mm. or not this is actually possible. And he was very sniffy about the whole thing. And, and I did some further reading on it. And I discovered that the Russians and the Chinese were very keen on this. And apparently there was a big um, uh, global meeting of powerhouses uh, in Moscow, I think. Um, and a big storm was due to hit. Uh, and the article said that the Russians had sent the planes up with pellets, I don't know, chemicals, okay. uh, to seed the clouds to make it rain away from the city so mm. that the delegates didn't get caught in the downpour. Oh, so to kind of, to just to allow the rain to fall in a different place from where it would have done naturally. Okay. <laughs> um, but on the subject of hail, mm. and this, this, this might be straight out of the Cliff Claven book of facts, so don't at me, I am sure that I read on the subject of hailstones, historically, the most destructive British hailstorm um, took place in 1843 
and covered a corridor from the Cotswolds all the way through to the Norfolk Broads. Mm. It's a long corridor. It smashed roofs in Oxfordshire, pounded them to pieces. In mm. Cambridgeshire, there was an enormous quantity of glass, which was smashed at the windows of the colleges and in public buildings. And in Norfolk, they suffered a devastation of agricultural crops. What do you know about hail? Not, I mean, the same as anybody else. <laughs> Go back to a conversation we were having not so very long ago about pain. Uh, oh, mama. <laughs> the oh, mama scale. The, the pain scale yeah. that the fella came up with. Um, and there is a similar kind of... Well, there's, a, there's probably a scale for everything, isn't there? But there is yeah. a hailstone scale. Is there? Unsurprisingly called... The... I'm going to go with... Hold on, I've really thought this through. <laughs> I'm going to go with the hail scale. Oh, very good. That's actually better. They've it? called it the H scale. What? Yeah, I know. I know. They don't spend a lot of time on creativity, do they? They should have rung me. <laughs> uh, this goes from uh, H0, which is a hailstone the size of a pea, mm. right the way through to H10, uh, uh, a hailstone the size of a melon. What? Yes. A melon? No, that would be, no, that would be a big melon. Or a small yes. melon. Or a medium. Any, any melon. That would be an enormous hailstone. Um, oh, no. the, 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 the golf ball size is around H5. Hailstones the size of golf balls. We hear that, don't we? Mm. I've never They're seen not the one. the size of melons. No, that, that would be enormous. Although, the, I think the... I think the biggest one was uh, was was enormous. There you are. That you you could tell I did my research on that. The biggest one was enormous. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so that leaves me a lot of latitude anywhere between uh, a melon and the moon. <laughs> but it was it was big. It was the size like of a basketball. Something absolutely ridiculous. Wow. The thing about a hailstorm is that it seldom lasts. More than six minutes. Is this an official average yes. or is it something you've come up with? They seldom last longer than six minutes. Not not that all hailstones all hailstorms last six minutes, but mm. hailstorms seldom last longer than six minutes. Because usually you get a, a, a downpour, it comes down, it's clattering down, everybody thinks that the world's coming to an end. Uh, before you've found a hatch to batten down, the whole thing's <laughs> over and done with. Yeah, because yeah, if you're you're looking out the window and you say, "Oh, it's hailing," yeah, and then it's if it, it had, you know, it doesn't happen all that often in this country. But when it does, you call the kids. Oh, look, it's hailing! And then by the time they've got to the window, it stopped. It's, it's all gone. Not only yeah. is it is it stopped, it, there's nothing left on the floor either uh, on the ground. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. It was three feet thick. No, it wasn't. <laughs> well, it was a moment ago. You should have been here a moment ago. They were the size of melons. They were. <laughs> <laughs> Pub quiz time. Always up for a pub quiz. This is a fact or fiction, and it comes in three parts, and oh. it's all to do with ears. I feel the need to make notes. Oh, I think you'll need to. Okay. Um, as you probably know, not everyone's earwax is the same. I, I didn't. I suppose if I'd ever actually spent any time thinking about it, I would have come to that conclusion, but yeah. Carry on. There are two different types. There's wet mm. 
and there's dry. Yeah. Genetically, Asian and American Indians have dry, flaky earwax, whilst Caucasian and Africans have moist brown wax. Between the chap lips and the earwax, I mean, you're really doing it for me this week. <laughs> <laughs> so my first question is, is that a fact or is that a fiction? What, that there are two types of earwax? Indeed. Okay. My second question is this, and let me set the scene. Overheating is a problem for some large animals. Yeah. The elephant's ears evolved to stop them boiling to death. And humans with very large ears display similar tendencies. On average, they tend to have higher body temperatures than those with smaller ears. Okay. Is that a fact or is that fiction? And third and finally, it became fashionable amongst sailors and explorers to have a single ear pierced in the belief that it improved their vision. Right. <laughs> is that a fact? Surely, that if they had both ears pierced, they would have had double vision. <laughs> oh, ho, ho. anyway, that's that's the pub quiz. And we'll come back to that, all about ears. We'll find out what was fact and what was fiction, what was true and what was false a little bit later on. Now, here's why the first man in the world to be convicted of speeding was probably fairly happy about it. Oh, right, OK. 125 years ago, this is, mm. in the village of Paddock Wood in Kent... Walter Arnold drove his horseless carriage at eight miles an hour, <clears throat> four, four times faster than the speed limit of two miles an hour. It's a wonder his skin stayed on his body. Yes, he's a lucky man. A five-mile hot pursuit eventually ended with Arnold being uh, caught and then charged with four offences. Uh, using a locomotive without a horse on a public road, allowing the locomotive to be operated by less than three people, travelling faster than two miles per hour, and failing to display his name and address on the vehicle, for which he was fined the equivalent of about £300. Get out of here. Yeah. But the reason I say that I reckon he probably was fairly happy about it was his business was twofold, car manufacturing and car dealerships. Ah, there you go. So he got quite a lot of publicity for, you know, breaking all these laws. We're back to publicity stunts yet again. And, of course, a lot of uh, car manufacturing and car sales is driven by that great big publicity stunt, which is Formula One. Are we talking yes. about a steam-driven vehicle? No, I think it was the... It was like a horse's carriage, so I think it was one of the first combustion but, engines. Oh, oh, okay. Or well, there were the internal combustion just before the internal combustion engine um, became popular. Steam driven. I mean, the, you've got the traction engines and the such like, but there were steam lorries, and there were also some steam cars. Yeah. As well. And I mean, thinking about it that long ago, that it, it must have been steam. Yeah, yeah. It may well have been. Must have been. And he could get up to speeds of eight eight miles an hour. Yeah, I mean, there's no airbags. You can walk faster than that. <laughs> well, you can. I, I, I can't necessarily do that these days, but you can walk faster than eight miles an hour, surely. 
Well, I think if you if you really put your mind to it, you probably could. I think it's about two two or three miles an hour the average speed of walking. Well, marching so, is about four miles an hour, isn't it? If you if you're yeah. on 120 paces a, a minute. So that's probably why the speed limit was two miles an hour at that time. So yeah, that you could amble, you could slow amble, walk it. Yeah, yeah. But apparently, not long after he got his speeding ticket, the speed limit was raised to 14 miles an hour. <laughs> Somebody had shares in his his business, obviously. Yeah, and the need for the man with the flag was also uh, removed. So you know, see, that's causing unemployment. It is, isn't it? And also, I guess the requirement to have three people operating the vehicle was probably removed as well. So again, see, you know, yeah. that's see, we've got we've gone from a man with a flag and three people operating to two men on a bus, mm. a conductor and a driver, to one man on a bus, and very soon, no people at all. Would you get in a car that drove itself? Uh, I mean, I struggle to get in a car that's driven by somebody else as it is. So yeah, me too. I'm not. I'm not a good passenger. No, I'm not a great passenger. So I think it's. I can't imagine it, but you know, in ten years' time, maybe if they've been proved to be, uh, to be safe, then uh, yeah, probably. I mean, I think we're certainly in the United Kingdom. I think we're a fair way away from a time when, I mean, it used to be the case that whenever you saw a futuristic movie, there would be flying cars. I think we're a fair way away from driverless cars in this country because it would mean, surely to goodness, that our roads would have to be of a dis- different standard than they are now. Yes, because they're a, they're a blooming nightmare at the moment, aren't oh, they? It's like a, a, a theme park of potholes. I'm not averse to progress, though. I've had a go on one of these e-scooters. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. How'd you get on? Great fun. Yeah, really enjoyed it. I went. I was out for a walk one Sunday evening, and the roads were empty, and um, walked a bit further than I thought I was going to, and got a bit tired, and saw one of the scooters there, and thought, well, why not? Did you get up to speeds of eight miles an hour? I think they're. I think they're limited to. I can't remember what they're limited to, but I think it might be a bit faster than that, actually. Mm. Yeah. I, I, if I if I had hair, I would have felt the wind in it. <laughs> <laughs> One passed me on the road the other day, as though it was um, legal to do that. I don't think it is. Uh, well, this thing, I, this, this thing was in the middle of the road, uh, went straight through the red light and everything, and whipped up the hill. Uh, yeah. but it was going at a hell of a rate. Well, there's the, there's like the legal ones which are regulated and you know uh, are limited to a certain speed, and then there's the ones that aren't. And right. yeah, they you see them nipping about, and those those really do look dangerous to me. I don't think I'd be going on one of those ones, but um, but, it, but it does look like they've taken off in a big way. Whether it's a gimmick at the moment, we'll have to mm. wait and see. But uh, it, it's like it, it's like listening into tomorrow's world, you and I. <laughs> tomorrow's world today. Here it is. Here's here's something that will absolutely blow your mind. Okay. Remember, you had pen and paper earlier on, everyone. You're going to need it again for this. Okay. Just, uh, you might want to draw this. Vulcan Point. I don't know if you're aware of this place. It's uh, not the top of Mr. Spock's ears. This is much more interesting. Vulcan Point in the Philippines is the world's largest island within a lake situated on an island located in a lake within an island. Whoa, hold on a minute. See what I mean? You're going to need the pen and paper. Run that past me again. So it's the world's largest island. island. So put a little dot on your paper. 
Yeah. That's your island. In one circle. That's the world's largest island on a lake. Situated on an island. Another, Another circle island. around that. Located in a lake. In a lake. Within an island. Wow. Where was this? This is in the Philippines. The Philippines? Yeah. That sounds amazing. It I, is. What's it called? Vulcan Point? Vulcan Point. You can find uh, photographic evidence. It's a tiny little island in the crater of a volcano. So Vulcan Point is inside the main crater lake, which is on Volcano Island, which is in a lake called Tal, Lake Tal, which is on the Filipino island of Luzon. Wow. So it is the world's largest island, even though it's only a dot in this, uh, in this crater lake. It's the world's largest island within a lake situated on an island located in a lake within an island. Okay, back to our answers to today's pub quiz. And uh, mm. this was all about ears. As yeah, all ears. Yeah. yeah, pin yours back. Uh, I said that not everyone's earwax is the same. Two different types, wet and dry. Um, Asians, American Indians have dry, flaky earwax. Caucasians, Africans are more likely to have moist brown wax. What did you have for that? What did you say? Oh, I thought you were asking what sort of earwax I had. I, I don't think I need to know that, and neither no. do our listener. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to say yes, there are different types of earwax. Uh, and you'd be right. You'd get a point uh. for that. Earwax has been very useful to anthropologists for studying mankind's early migratory patterns mm -hmm. because, a bit like the honey that they found in Egyptian tombs, it sticks around. Ah. You know, when they went into the tombs, Tutankhamun and such like, they found these pots in there, sealed yeah. pots, and they took the seal out, and there were honey. Yeah. And it was it was still flowing. It was still liquid. And it's the same with earwax. It's very similar. It sticks around, earwax does, uh, mostly in people's ears. And the yeah. second one concerned overheating, uh, which is a problem for large mammals, elephants' ears. Yeah evolved to stop them boiling to death, and humans with very large ears display similar tendencies. On average, they tend to have higher body temperatures than those with smaller ears. Humans with larger ears have higher body temperatures. Is that fact or fiction? I mean, it just strikes me as utter cobblers. And I mean, the, the reason is that I would have thought if there was anything in it at all, it would have been that people with bigger ears would have had a lower body temperature. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you see, this is your scientific brain analysing things. You you could have been, you know, you could have been someone if you'd tried. I, I, I'm definitely wasted on this podcast anyway. <laughs> what so many people are saying. It's a fiction. So hey. you're right. Well done. Two for two. Yeah, well done. Uh, Prince Charles has made it this far without spontaneously combusting, so there's no, yeah. nothing to do with the size of your ear. So, uh, third and final one. It became fashionable amongst sailors and explorers to have a single ear pierced in the belief that improved their vision. Mm. 
I mean, if you think of the old, the kind of archetypal vision of a pirate, they've got a hooped earring, haven't they? Uh-huh. Generally speaking. Mm-hmm. And they're obviously sailors. But then if you're an explorer, you want to keep things as simple as possible. But then again, if you did find a way of... No, it's rubbish, isn't it? Of course not. Why on earth would having a single ear pierce make any difference to the quality of your vision? Well, it is it is rubbish, but it is a fact. <laughs> it is a fact that they believed that that was oh, okay. the case. Um, an erroneous belief, but one widely held. Uh, they, oh. they all seem to think that um, have a piece of gold in your ear and your vision will get better. Um, they also wore gold earrings to ensure there was sufficient money to pay for a Christian burial should their dead body be washed up on oh. a desert island or anywhere else. So and I suppose if you, if you keep it in your ear, then I was going to say you can always keep an eye on it, but that's not actually true, is it? Anyway, that's just about us done and dusted. I think I hear the bell. Yeah, it's time to go. I'm going to go to another pub with someone else who might buy me a drink I actually want to drink. <laughs> Butter tea. You know it makes sense. <laughs> See you next time. That's time at the far end of the bar. You've been listening to Richard Lewis and Ben Orr. If you enjoyed your time with us, please don't forget to like and subscribe to make sure you catch the next episode. And find us on all the socials. Just search hashtag TFEOTB or email us at thefarendofthebar at gmail.com. Cheers! <laughs>